Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. So we pick up our passage today towards the end of the letter to the Hebrews, and we're in chapter 12. Um, I think it might come up behind me, but I'm going to read it anyway. Uh, This is verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches a mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in a festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolls in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, now when I first read the beginning of this section, I I read it in the NIV translation, which adds one extra word for a little clarity for all of us readers today. It reads, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm. So when I I first read this, immediately the picture that came to my mind was Mount Doom from Lord of the Rings. It looks about like this if you've never seen the film. I'm not sure if you you can resonate with that. This is exactly what came to my mind. But for, for these original hearers of this letter, they hadn't seen Lord of the Rings yet surprisingly. Um, So the first thing that would have come into their minds would be a very specific mountain that they were very familiar with um, and from their history, and this was called Mount Sinai. We read about this mountain in the book of Exodus, um, and it's when the Israelites uh, are in the wilderness and they've come to this big mountain called Mount Sinai. I'm just going to read from Exodus 19 just to show you what, what this was in Exodus. And the Lord says to Moses in this passage, this is Exodus 19, verse 11. And be ready for the third day. From the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all of the people. And you shall set limits around the pe- for, for the people, saying, take care, take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. And then down to 
to 16, it says, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all of the people in the camp trembled. So very clearly this is exactly what our writer of Hebrews is referring to is this event at Mount Sinai. We read how, how God's presence descends on the mountain in a powerfully tangible way. They could hear it, they could see it. Uh, and this was absolutely terrifying for the Israelites. And it says even Moses was terrified. The Israelites saw the powerful majesty of God descend on the mountain. And they were warned by God himself, don't, don't go near, you cannot approach him, lest they die. Now, I, I can't really imagine what that was like, to be honest. Um, I think the closest I've ever come to anything like that was um, when I was at uni. Um, the Duke and Duchess, uh, Will and Kate, they came to my uni um, to open one of the buildings. And they closed off every single building, even around the building that they, they came to visit. All the roads were closed. You couldn't even get close. And um, you had all these security guards. They had guns and they had dogs as well, lest anyone was to get close to his majesty, the Prince of Wales. Um, but in this scenario, I wasn't afraid. I, was, I wasn't terr terrified as the Israelites were. This picture of Sinai in this passage is calling us back to an untouchable God. Stay away. Don't come near. You will die. Why? Because you're dealing with a powerful and holy God. Now, this word holy, um, I think it's one of those words that can sometimes get a bit lost in, in how we use it today. Uh, we miss a bit the weight of its meaning. If, if you hear it in the Bible or, or in songs, um, you don't really hear it in every day, except maybe in a bit of a negative way, depicting something that's overly religious or, or righteous, holier than now, for example. But holy really means pure. It means sacred, set apart, and totally other. God is holy. We read in the Bible that the angels sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Three whole holies. And it's the only time in the Bible anything like this is repeated three times. That is how holy God is. God is sacred. God is set apart. And God is above all things. So when God's holy presence comes to Mount Sinai, God is unapproachable. The Israelites see God's holiness and they are so afraid as it exposes them for all of their unholiness. It's the ultimate picture of the infinite distance between holy God and sinful mankind. They could never get close. Sometimes I find it hard to read passages like this. I don't know if you relate. Especially in, in the Old Testament, it, it seems a bit extreme. He's, he's going to kill them if they get too close. Isn't that a bit mean? A bit intolerant? And um, if you're a bit like me and you're feeling that this morning, I just want to give um, a bit of an analogy to try and reframe that first this morning. And this I've stolen from Dr. Tim Mackey, who co-founded the Bible Project. And I think it's a really great analogy for us to see God's holiness. He says, think about the sun, the sun in the sky. Does anyone think it's kind of crazy how we get sunburnt? The sun is 93 million miles away, but we still get sunburnt. It's crazy, isn't it? We've all been there. We've all been there. Um, but we still love the sun, don't we? It doesn't stop us. We look forward to summer every year. And in fact, the sun fuels our life. It's light and energy 
Let's Grass Grow It provides us food. It allows animals and humans alike to thrive and to survive. We live because of the sun. The sun is a good thing. The sun is good, right? But just because the sun is good and life-giving, does that mean that I should get on a SpaceX and, and have a little picnic on the sun? No, that would be stupid. That would be a terrible idea. Just because the sun is so good does not mean I could survive even getting two million miles closer to the sun. I would be burnt to a crisp. But does that mean that the sun is bad? That the sun is mean? The sun is intolerant of me? No, the sun is just being the sun. It's being its very nature, raw, pure energy and power. The problem isn't with the sun. The problem is with me. I'm not fit in my present condition to go anywhere near the sun. And this is a bit like God's holiness. Because of the brokenness, the corruption, and the moral failures of the Israelites, they were in no fit condition to approach God. They could not even come close. But when we read on in our passage, we read that this is not what we have approached We have not come to Mount Sinai to an unapproachable God. Hebrews says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels, the the assembly of the firstborn, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus. And let's be honest. This sounds a bit more enjoyable, doesn't it? (laughs) In some of your Bible translations, you might have a heading above your passage that says the mountain of fear and the mountain of joy. This is the mountain of joy being described right here. And what a contrast it is. Now Now, for context, Mount Zion was also a real mountain, just like Sinai was. Uh, And this was a place that Solomon had built, God's temple. The temple being the place where God's holy presence well on earth. But this author isn't saying that we've literally come to Mount Zion. It says we've not come to what may be touched. Instead of a physical mountain, we've come to a symbolic and spiritual mountain instead. We have come to Mount Zion, to God's presence. But this time, God's presence is not cause for great fear and trembling. It's a joyous festival party in the city of the living God. We're no longer prevented from coming into God's presence. We're invited to a party at his house. It reminds me of um, my absolute most favorite thing about my wedding was just celebrating with all my friends and family, the people that meant the most to me. And um, this is what Zion is depicted as. Imagine if while I was standing behind those barriers for the Duke and Duchess, Will and Kate, and Prince William came over to me and he invited me to a big party at his house at Buckingham Palace. How cool would that be? I say that, but then the more I think about it, I think it would actually be really awkward, wouldn't it? Like, in reality, I shouldn't really be be there. (laughs) I'd stick out a bit. I would not fit in. I'm not noble or, or famous or royal. And I've not done anything special or or achieved anything worthy enough to be in any position to have a relationship with these people. I, I can't even come close. So if the Israelites were so infinitely far from God that they could not approach him without terrifying fear, 
How is it that we are now invited to the city of the living God? And it's a cause for great joy. Well, the passage tells us the answer. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It is through Jesus that we can come to God's holy presence. We were not able to stand in God's presence as we were, messed up, rebellious, unholy. The wages of sin were death. So God sent his son, Jesus, to die in place of us for all my sin and for all your sin. So that it was paid for once and for all, that we may now approach the throne of God with confidence. The passage says that his sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Uh, Abel, in Genesis, was the first human to be murdered and by his own brother, that his innocent blood cried out from the ground for justice. But Jesus' innocent blood instead speaks of grace. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant that speaks of grace, the unmerited, undeserved, unearned favour and kindness of God. Jesus paid the price for us. And through him we are made holy to share in God's holy presence through his amazing grace. God is so gracious. But the author of Hebrews goes on to give us quite a serious warning here. Jesus speaks of grace, but the passage says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't refuse Jesus and the offer of grace. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And I think it's quite easy for us at times like these with, with passages like this to say, oh, Sinai, mean, scary God. Yeah, that, that was back, back then. And now, Zion, we've got that God. We find ourselves separating God into two separate books, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. But here we have a reminder. There is only God. His purposes do not change. His character does not change. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament and the God of now. God is the same God. He is the same holy God and the judge of all. And if we're unwilling to humble ourselves before God in all his holiness, it is bad news. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But it doesn't have to be that way. That 1 John passage continues on to say, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just. To forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is good news. If we come to Jesus, we can share in God's holiness. That God at Sinai and the story we read there emphasizes God in all his holiness. And if we did not have that picture of how holy God is, how could we ever understand the depths of God's grace? God is the same holy God, but he's the same gracious God who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. Now, let us remind ourselves that the context of this letter was to those Jewish Christians who were starting to turn away from their faith. 
their, their Christian lives were being pushed to the background and they were building their lives upon and around other things. And this is the same for us today. Even without knowing or realizing, we might be doing it. Maybe we never refused God's grace, but we've started to live in a way where he is no longer the forefront of our lives. We've built up our own temples that are becoming increasingly more important. And this is where we find the challenge of our last section today. It says, at that time, his voice shook the earth, referring to Sinai. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens, meaning the entirety of creation. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This passage is speaking to the biblical idea of idolatry, putting things that aren't God in the place of God. And it's very easy when when someone talks of idolatry to think, I don't worship other gods. This isn't me. We skim over this issue. But this passage speaks to where our focus is, where our energy goes, where our time is spent. What do you turn to for meaning in your life? And what gives you purpose? This could be things like money or possessions, It might even be a person, or even the idea of a person, a partner, or even a child. They're where we find our significance. We build our world around them, and they become our gods. Perhaps you build your life on your career, being successful, or even what other people think of you. And the author is warning us here of their instability. These shakeable things will not stand up to the one true holy God. There is this image of of the whole of cosmos shaking. And everything that has been made, everything that we have built up, will come crashing down around us. And we will be devastated. I know that not long ago, my life was built around being successful. It it was my mantra, if, if I worked hard, I would achieve all I needed. And I would be content. I made all my life choices about around my career and invested all of my time and energy into doing things that looked the best on paper and successful to those around me. My life revolved around my academic work, my career, and a future I had planned out for myself. I idolized being perceived as being successful. But it was hollow. The gratification was temporary, and it truly didn't make me any happier. And in fact, when things didn't quite go as I had planned, when that pedestal I had built up was shaken, I was completely lost. My meaning and my purpose was gone, and it was a very difficult time for me for a long time. And I think if the last few years have taught us anything, it's how shakeable life can be. Our health, our jobs, our financial security are not a given. We cannot work and build for ourselves an unshakable kingdom. But we have inherited a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When we build our lives upon God, when he is front and centre, when we rely and turn to him for our meaning and our purpose and our significance, it is unshakable. When my life was built on all I had achieved for myself, it was so easy for one mistake or or one thing to crumble me. But knowing now that God can never be shaken, 
that he has me no matter what. Gives me confidence when things don't go to plan. When things like everything is falling apart and when I am lost, God has a purpose for me and his kingdom cannot be shaken. Our passage today finishes with this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. God is so holy, we have absolutely no business being in his presence. But God is so gracious that he made a way for us to have a relationship with him anyway. And to inherit an unshakable kingdom. What is our response? Paul writes in Romans, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And that's all I kind of had to say to you this morning. I'm just going to invite Luke up um, and just end in prayer for us today. Yeah, Heavenly Father, I thank you that despite all of our unholiness, you still wanted a relationship with us. And that, Lord, because of your grace, through Jesus, we can approach Mount Zion in joy, that heavenly Jerusalem, and inherit that unshakable kingdom. 